Am I still aiming at my original bullseye? Am I tra is the arrow traveling towards that bullseye or am I starting to get off path here? Folks that work for me, they're more engaged in day-to-day -day activities. And sometimes it's easy to get distracted. It's the difference between you know, working in your business and working on your business. And at my level, if I wasn't working on the business more than in it, everybody has meetings they got to do, everybody has papers they got to sign, contracts they got to review, and, you know, go check on some work and go sign, you know, payroll, whatever it is. That's when you're working in your business. But if you're not working on your business and making sure you're traveling towards that bullseye, you're going to experience some drift. Welcome to episode 76. I'm Brad Levitt, and you're listening to the AFT Construction Podcast. In this week's episode, we're fortunate to host Jim Sperlino. Jim just launched a book on Amazon. I was fortunate to read it. It's a tremendous book. It'll be in the show notes. I recommend you purchase that book and read it as he discusses you know, how to really target your vision and bullseye as a company. So much value there. And he was a referral to us by a builder that I highly admire, uh, Dan with Devo Builders. And in this episode, Jim dove into how to pivot your business, you know, the entrepreneur mentality, how to think outside the box to conquer areas where other people aren't willing to go. And he speaks about the success he had because he was willing to do something others weren't and, and how he thought about those, how he strategized and just can't thank him enough for making time to come on the podcast, speak to all of us. I know there's going to be a tremendous insight that all of you gain from listening in. So one other app that we are enjoying right now is a Clubhouse app. It's a huge networking tool. It's an addition to the podcast where you hear from us each week. And on these forums, we're speaking with other professionals about billing, contracting, scheduling, all the things that we deal with on a regular basis. And this is for iPhone users only. It is by invite only. If you need an invite, let us know. But definitely check out the Clubhouse app and tune in. And now here's our discussion with Jim. So welcome to the AT Construction Podcast, and we're very fortunate today to have Jim Sperlino with us today. Welcome, Jim. Hey, Brad. So Jim was actually referred to us. Dan with uh, Devo Builders uh, recommended to bring you on, and Dan uh, is a good friend of mine, but mo more importantly, he, you know, he had mentioned that Jim has so much to offer. Jim, is, uh, he has a book that was just released this week, which is super exciting. It's The Business Bullseye, Take Dead Aim and Achieve Great Success, which we'll dive into. And Jim has incredible success building companies, uh, the entrepreneurship side, and as well as just everything you've done throughout your career, you know, from the entrepreneur uh, mentality, which is super important. So I want to start with this, you know, what inspires an entrepreneur? I know for me, it's, it's the, the, the possibilities. It's what could be. It's the, the challenges, the potential, and, uh, and, and particularly the chance to be the best. And, and that's that's what always drove not just me, but my company. And do you feel that, you know, this was inherent in you? Because I know that you worked for a firm for quite some time, and we're going to dive into the specifics of that. And then you had felt, okay, now it's time to move off on my own. So was this something you always wanted to do, or it just kind of fell into place? Uh, you know, I started at this uh, this company that I worked for when I was in college and it was a job, you know, basically to pay for college. And I got my undergraduate degree and then I got my MBA and I stayed there for 15 years. I was at the end vice president and general manager and I'd risen up pretty quick and, and, um, just was, had always been, uh, maybe a little bit of an overachiever, uh, you know, was involved in athletics and so forth throughout school. And that I think creates a little bit of a competitive drive, uh, but for the most part, uh, 
there was more I wanted to do in my industry and with my career than I was being allowed from my uh, my employer at the time. And um, I knew there was so much more we could do. And uh, that just led me to, to start looking at uh, running my own company. And, and honestly, from for the last few years I was there, I tried to buy the company from the owner, and he just wasn't interested. And so in the end, I said, okay, that's, that's, that's fine. I'm going to go try this on my own. So it's interesting. I mean, you come from the concrete background, which we'll get into, you know, from the manufacturing side. But, you know, as far as your career, did you grow up in construction? Did you have a plan to go down that road? You know, when you were in school doing your bachelor's degree and then getting your MBA, uh, you know, did you have plans to maybe go a different direction or did it just come in line with, hey, I'm working here for this company. There's a lot of opportunity. It's going well. I'm learning a lot and I feel like I can apply the schooling into my current career. Well, you know, I, no, I didn't always want to be in the uh, concrete business. I don't know how you grow up to <laughs> want to do that. Um, but what happened was really was was in college. There was construction was the best paying jobs, and um, I, I started out in uh, highway construction. I mean, it, honestly, like my first job was running a jackhammer on an interstate highway, and um, I liked that. And and you know, got to grow into some positions in that company, and it was just a great paying job at the time. And, um, uh, so for the most part, I was just trying to earn as, you know, as the best wages I could. Um, and then once I got my degrees, you know, I was in a company and had started to move up and, and to be honest in our industry in the construction materials industry, um, you know, I don't know that we attract the, the best and the brightest, you don't you don't find a bunch of Harvard and Yale grads clamoring for jobs in construction. And so, you know, if you have drive, if you have a good work ethic, if you're, you know, reasonably bright, um, probably in that order, um, you know, you, you, you've got lots of potential. And, and that's what I found. I was, I was happy to have all the opportunities to keep growing in the company, keep uh, getting more uh, responsibility and uh, having more impact on their success. So that really wasn't a conscious decision as much as there's opportunities in front of me. And I, I knew I wanted I knew I wanted to run something and, and you know, eventually run a company. So that, that was a path that, that, that just presented itself. Well, I think what's interesting, I mean, you, you work for a company, so you're getting a lot of experience to the ins and out, you know, whether it be purchasing or estimating, uh, you know, the coordination that happens in, you, you know, especially with where you're at, where you're supplying concrete, right, to to the field. And so there's a lot of coordination from managing the trucks and traffic and all the inconsistencies that come up on a day-to-day basis. But you, most MBAs that I speak to, or most people that have uh, received that uh, MBA in finance, it seems that there is more of an entrepreneurship mentality, whether that's instilled in them naturally or going to school, you know, that the program's typically catered to be an entrepreneur. And it's almost hand in hand where now, Jim, you had the the know-how because you worked for a company and then now you have, you know, the experience as far as doing your MBA. So you can put these two together, which do you feel that gave you an advantage now when you left to start your own firm? Well, I do. And I, you know, something, um, uh, a friend of mine had always told me, you know, he looked for in, in people, and this is a, a guy that runs a large construction company. He said he, he always looked for people that had dual degrees and he was talking about a college degree and a degree basically out in the field of hard knocks. And um, I, I think there's a great advantage to that. I think I think that I, there's probably actually a lot of MBAs that think, uh, you know, I've, I've got my MBA. I'm going to go to work for a bank or Goldman Sachs or you know have a great career in finance. And, but I think that there's also this, this, a huge amount of potential 
and opportunities out there to take, uh, you know, that degree in hard knocks where you're actually learning uh, a business, learning an industry, as well as combined with your academic background. And, um, you know, I, I talk about in my book, the three, three legs of a stool that are important to anybody's success. It's having that academic degree. It's having, you know, that, that foundation there. It's having the knowledge about an industry. Uh, and it's having the knowledge about your company and what it what it can do and what it can't do, and and, and those three things combined are so important. Uh, and, and the reason I call them the three legs of a stool because just like any three legged stool, you lose one and it's going to fall over. Yeah, I love that analogy. I, I when I read your book, that was one of the items that stuck out, right? Because those three pillars are so important. You take one out and, and the stool will fall down, which is key to business. I mean, that's key to being successful and. You know, I know when you and I were speaking just about business in general and entrepreneurship, one of the things you mentioned is you said, hey, Brad, you know, when I went off on my own, you know, one of the things I attribute to our rapid growth is that we were willing to take on challenges that our competitors were not, right? We're willing to look at ways to um, go into areas and target markets that our competitors just didn't want to do with it, that they didn't want to come up with a solution. So, so describe... I guess where that mentality came from and how you achieved, you know, just your strategy to come in and build, you know, a plant in one day, you know, and be up and operating right away. Yeah. I, you know, <clears throat> and it's probably similar to, um, how I got into the concrete industry. Even I don't want to make everything that I was, uh, good or successful at sound like I stumbled into it, but it, it was almost one of those things where when you start a business and we started a business from scratch, we didn't buy somebody. We, we started with no customers, no sales, no employees. And we bought a bunch of plants and a bunch of trucks. And it was kind of a burden in that aspect. But what it, what it did was it made us all hungry. I mean, we had to go out and, and get that first sale. And then we had to get all the sales after that. And when, when you're kind of in that position, when a customer comes to you or an owner comes to you and he says, hey, I want to do this. And you see the competitors around saying, you know, we don't do that. That's not, you know, that's not what we do. Or that's, you know, we don't work on Sundays or we don't work in the middle of the night. Or, you know, um, uh, we had a, a concrete pour, you would appreciate this, Brad, that went uh, 10 straight days, 24 hours a day. <laughs> and and there's a ton of companies that said, we don't, we don't do that. We, you know, we operate one shift a day. We don't, you know, how could you, how could you do that? How could you do 24 hours a day, uh, let alone for 10 days straight? It was a continuous pour. It was a uh, silos that were going straight up in the air that were being slip form. And you had to have concrete there every Continuously. Hour, continuously. And, um, and those are the kind of things where, you know, in the beginning it was, we needed work. But then uh, as time went on, we saw this as, as a significant part of our business because it was, really one of those things where our competitors weren't and frankly outsized profit margins existed and you just we just had to be willing to do it had to figure out a way to do it and um, uh, you know I want to say it's classic kind of making sure you think out of the box sometimes but it's, it's being open and willing to do those kind of things and it, it could be very lucrative if you are yeah it's interesting I want to dive into that aspect of thinking outside the box of what you've done but I think it's really important for the listeners you know for those that aren't as savvy, I should say, with the construction industry or with concrete specifically, you know, you say it as if, hey, you know, we had competitors that weren't willing to come in and do a 10 straight day, 24 hours a day, but there is some tremendous complexity and there's a reason why your competitors would not. So explain a little bit, you know, for someone, if you're educating them on the concrete industry as a supplier, 
just just what that entails, you know, th- that you're delivering a truck, you know, maybe every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, every hour, whatever it may be, and, you know, the shelf life of that product on the truck and how it's mixed in the plant and how it gets there and then it's poured and then, you know, you have the install crew that's there, you know, going through these silos, but explain just the complexity to do that even for a straight eight hours, yet alone 10 days. Sure. I mean, it, it, it kind of starts with, you know, companies like ours, any manufacturer, you're set up with a workforce that is, you know, almost always very typically one shift per day, five or six days a week. And that's, that's what you're set up for. And, um, uh, so to, to try and figure out the second and third shift, um, is, is a lot of complexity because you've got people that are fairly specialized in our industry, like they are in a lot of industries, you know, whether they're running a plant or a piece of equipment or doing quality control, or uh, receiving materials, raw materials that are coming in, uh, all those things, um, you know, require some extra planning when all of a sudden you're essentially tripling the size of the company for 10 days, just for 10 days. And then you go back to normal. So it's, it, it, it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's a complex amount of planning that goes on, but it also takes, it takes the people, uh, you know, wanting and willing to do that. Um, it, it takes, you know, the folks that we had were always interested in that challenge. I think it, it, it became almost if we didn't have something interesting or challenging for them coming up in the year or the months ahead, you, you know, they, they weren't as happy. They weren't maybe as motivated or, or uh, thrilled to go to work. We just got to do our normal job. We don't get to do something, you know, super hard today. Um <clears throat> But the, the, you know, the, the alternative side too, just that happens with concrete is concrete's a perishable product. Um, you essentially, uh, concrete's made with cement, which is a powder and aggregate and water and, and some chemicals. But when, what happens to make, uh, concrete go from soft to hard is that water and the cement combine and there's a chemical reaction and there's a limited amount of time before that chemical reaction causes the concrete to get hard. It's about 90 minutes, 90 minutes from the time the water hits the cement at the plant. And so then this truck has to drive out into traffic and encounter, yeah. you know, what it encounters, what we all encounter every day driving, right? You, you know, you, <clears throat> no matter what you think you're playing, you know, you hit a bottleneck, there's a, uh, there's a wreck on the highway, um, you know, equipment breaks down, um, Brad, I know you're a contractor. I don't mean to pick on contractors. Contractors no. change their minds. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want concrete at two and now I want it at four or the inspector didn't pass my, uh, footers. I didn't know I don't want that now. And, uh, there's a, there's all those complexities. I always compare, uh, the ready mix concrete business to air traffic control. So you think about it, the beginning of the day at, at, at four in the morning, a guy is sitting in a tower, air traffic control, and it's perfectly planned. He knows where every plane's going to go, when it takes off, when it lands, what the next destination is. It's perfectly planned out. And the first plane takes off and everything goes to hell. And, um, <laughs> you know, you, you, it's just then all of a sudden you're just living, you know, at the moment and trying to move stuff around. So, uh, you know, people get where they want to get or concrete gets where it's supposed to get. And it gets there safely and it gets there, you know, in a, in a, in a quality manner. And, um, you know, we're not, uh, we're not, uh, putting lives, you know, at stake other than our drivers and everybody else on the highway particularly, but, uh, we're not flying people, but, uh, the product's perishable and it's the product will die in 90 minutes. So you, you got to fight that. So it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting business. 
Yeah, and I love that analogy because you think about, especially now, you know, not only do you have weather and other issues there, traffic control, but maybe someone doesn't want to put their mask on the plane, right? And so it gets delayed and people have to get off. And so now you're creating all these issues in other cities and, you know, all the chaos that comes. And, and it's very similar to your business. And, and I love that you uh, explain it that way to say, you know, concrete dies. It has a shelf life. I mean, it's going to die in 90 minutes. And so that 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 that's why it's really important to think about just the complexity of running your business is that, you know, a lot of people think, okay, I, I own a concrete plant and a manufacturer and I'm supplying this, but the complexity of dealing with all the unforeseen circumstances. And now you have a client that comes in and says, okay, Jim, we, we need a continuous pour for 10 days, 24-hour shifts. The, the amount of complexity, because the, the contractor that they're using, they're going to dictate what times each pour has to be there, each truck, and you have to hit that in a 24-hour spam. And that's why I think it's important to give a little background and just, you know, you're, you're tripling the size of your business for 10 days, as you mentioned. So how do you motivate your team or help them see the vision where they're normally maybe an eight to five? I mean, I just use that term generally, but you have people that show up, you know, they're there for the day, they, they work really hard, but how do you create that incentive to say, okay, well, now you need to work the night shift or the early morning and, and to help us achieve this goal? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, our company really was a, a lot like most companies, we probably you know, uh, had 80% of our employees were kind of all cut from the same cloth. And, and then we had another 20% that we were always either working on or, or probably working to get rid of and our uh, turnover, you know, frankly. And, um, uh, but it, it, it really came down to, you know, the type of people we hired, but also the type of company we were and the way we talked about how we do things and the culture that existed in the company. And, and like I said, you know, we had, a bunch of employees that thrived on that. And it was almost like that was uh, something that motivated them to always achieve something more. And then when we went back to our normal business, um, you know, almost, uh, you know, creates an additional amount of talent out there that is doing even a, a better job at our normal business because they, uh, they know they can do much more. They know, you know, they know that they can achieve some, some of the tougher challenges in our industry. And yeah, we will absolutely kill it in our normal business. And, uh, it's really cool to see that. It's really cool to see, uh, you know, employees that come together as a team like that and want to want, want those challenges put in front of them. So, well, it's interesting because you can see that I think most companies that have built success, such as you have, Jim, is they, they have an ability to show that vision to their people, right? They, whether they believe in what they're doing or the product or the challenge ahead. And as they conquer that, you know, that confidence and expertise, expertise now turns, you know, into performance on a regular basis. And, and going back to when you started, so, you know, the background that we were speaking of, you know, you had worked for a firm, you had the education, you had the know-how, tried to acquire the company, it didn't work with the existing owner, so you go to start your own. Now, here you are trying to start a plant, right? You're starting your own plant, which, you know, there's going to be land, there's going to be materials, you know, there's a lot of costs involved, there's, you know, the overhead of any company, you know, so how, without getting into the exact specifics, but the finance behind it, you know, the cash behind it, the, you know, those sales, I mean, there's going to be a window there in construction where it takes time to start building that, I don't want to say bank account, but at least that lead generation, right, for, for projects to turn into fruition. So, you know, talk about that stress, or at least how did you overcome the finance part of it to start a, a new venture? The stress part was uh, crazy. <laughs> um, you know, literally, I don't mind sharing some of the numbers. We we um, we started with three brand new concrete plants and forty five brand new concrete trucks. 
So, so from day one, you had three plants, 45 trucks. Brand new. No business, and, and, no sales. And, and did you go personal investors? Did you go uh, you know, through a bank? I mean, how did you work the, the investment, the cost side of that? So uh, it was at the time when I first started talking about doing this, it was, it was at the very end of 1999. And some of us are old enough to remember back then. So this was beginning of 2000. You know, the economy had been great for years. Frankly, people thought it would never not go up every year, year after year. And um, banks were willing to lend money back then. And, and I joke with bankers today. I was like, you'd, you'd never let me do what I did back in 2000 today. You wouldn't even think about it. And um, so it was a different, it was a different time. Um, I had been at my previous employer for 15 years. I handled all the banking relationships. So I, I knew those guys. And they knew me. And I was starting my business in the markets that I had already been operating in for 15 years. So they knew the customers knew me. And, um, you, you know, I, the last thing I really wanted to do was name my company after myself, Sperlino Materials. But that's what I did, as brilliant as that sounds. But it was because, <laughs> it was because I'd been there for 15 years. I'd been in that market and people knew me. So it, was, it really was kind of the logical thing to do. But that... You know, the the getting the financing, I mean, to write the business plan, to write a uh, 75-page business plan, you know, to um, to go to the banks. We end up going to uh, four different banks, and only one said yes to the terms we needed. Uh, we end up borrowing a total of uh, $10 million, including wow, actually $8 million plus a $2 million line of credit, so a total of ten. And and, um, and was the $2 million line of credit, was that to help with cash flow and, you know, the other incidentals of starting a company? Yeah, because we didn't have any sales, so we knew, you know, that that first startup, we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of cash eating up and accounts receivable and inventory, mm-hmm. and, um, and and as well as just ramping up. So we were making payments on trucks and plants, and didn't you know weren't up to full capacity. Um, so the banking was tough. I mean, it was literally, uh, yeah, uh, just a it's like a a marathon run at a sprint race speed the whole way. It was it was every day. Um, you know, talking to, to bankers, um, trying to convince them of what we needed and what we had, and our business plan was uh, workable. But at the same time, we had, um, you know, I had a, I had to find the right people, and um, I wouldn't necessarily advise this exact way you ought to do things. But because I had been at that company, my previous employer, for 15 years, and, and essentially ran it, um, I ended up taking about 24 of those people out of the company, and, and you know, in my mind, took the 24 best. And took uh, we tried to hire five of the managers that uh, senior managers that worked for me there and end up with three of them. Um, but but uh, you know at all these turns you know there was some no you know go no go situations. I mean uh, you know frankly if I if I only got two out of out of those five instead of three I'm not sure I would have done what I did. Um, you know if we didn't get all. Uh, 10 million borrowed. I'm not sure exactly what that would have looked like because our three plants were configured in a certain way in the market to make sure it covered essentially all of uh, the city of Cincinnati. Um, And then there was a piece where even with suppliers, I got a tremendous amount of pushback, particularly from my previous employer who didn't want me in business and he threatening suppliers, cement suppliers, aggregate suppliers, fuel suppliers, tire suppliers, you name it. You know, and say, if you do business with him, I'll never buy another cent from you. And say, there's a lot of pressure going on to get suppliers just to sell you something and um, to say something on credit, which they don't really know you have credit. But 
Um, so I, I can tell you there was a, it was about a three month stretch where I, where I was probably working a hundred hours a week. And, um, you know, a lot of the nights I was, I'd sit on the floor at my coffee table, you know, pounding out the business plan and reconfiguring it and trying to get, get on the phone, trying to convince people to come work for me, trying to get people to buy from us, trying to get people to sell to us. It was, uh, uh, it was crazy. It was, you know, looking back on it, it seemed like a lot of fun. I don't ever want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that, that part's fascinating. You know, I always tell people chase experience, not money. And, and you think about just the career that you had, you know, you had the expertise, you had the banking relationships, which there's a lot of value, you know, any successful companies that have a good banking relationship, uh, you know, to carry them through because there is going to be the ups and downs. But even as you mentioned, to start a company, to be able to go and, and, and have the education and know how to create a 75 page business plan. And then have, you know, the expertise to sit down with the bank and say, I'm confident I need the $8 million for, you know, for the plants and equipment, these new trucks, uh, you know, and I need the $2 million cash flow as I'm bringing in, you know, 24 new people, three of the five managers that I need. You know, the, these are key components. And then, you know, the strategy, as you mentioned, you know, I was going to ask you why the three plants. And it makes sense that if you're trying to cover certain ground on Cincinnati, as you mentioned, the shelf life of concrete is 90 minutes. So you have to be positioned in three definite er three separate areas of the, of the big city that way it allows you uh you know more capacity for sales and projects right right and, and another big piece is you know if you would um I, I know i remember when i started the company i'd had a number of uh friends or relatives say you know why don't you just buy one plant 10 trucks and um you know the problem with that is one plant uh does not have a backup plant and uh, plants either break or go down or they have a, a mishap in the supply of raw materials or they have that big car accident, you know, that leads to the interstate from where the plant has to drive to deliver all of its concrete, those kind of things. So it's almost impossible to have to be, a, you know, a um, successful concrete company with one plant. And, and then, the, you know, the three, because of the size of Cincinnati, a good-sized city, not huge, but a good-sized city, it was a matter of making sure that if you were going to go sell like a, a major commercial contractor in that market, that they wouldn't be worried that, oh, he can't, he can't serve uh, this job and that job. He can only do one job at a time, or he can only do one, a job in this corner of the city, but he can't help me over here. And so it's tougher to develop a relationship uh, with those contractors when they don't really see you as a full service, uh, you know, particularly geographically. Uh, type supplier. So it, it just, it made sense overall in the long run. It created obviously a, a bigger, uh, you know, target on financing that we had to hit as well as, uh, you know, people and all the other uh, logistics. So, and, and as far as the scope of work, I mean, did you mostly focus on commercial? Was residential involved? We were, we were probably uh, almost always say 90%, 80, 90% commercial industrial. Um, we did we did a little bit of residential because it fits it it uh, fills out the schedule. The commercial guys tend to want to go early in the morning. The residential mm -hmm. guys tend to want to go in the afternoon. So uh, we really just did it to make sure we were utilizing capacity. But for the most part, we we were uh, commercial industrial. That's where we hung our hat. That's where we made our reputation. And so explain. You know, you start with three plants. You know, you start with your um, you know the forty five trucks as you're working, and then. At some point, you know, came the opportunity that we mentioned earlier where it's like, okay, let's think outside the box and do something that's a little bit different. You know, we, we may have a remote facility for a large company, 
that's not in the city of Cincinnati. So we can set up a, a temp plant or, you know, remote plants. So, you know, what was the complexity of starting up remote plant remote plants in other areas? And then how quick did you get those up and running? So it, it started on a pretty small scale. So actually, um, I'm going to tell another story about kind of blindly running into some something. <laughs> so, but you're either just going to think I'm a really lucky guy, or you're going to think that I've figured <laughs> well, hard out work, stuff. Hard work leads to luck. And anyone listening, I mean, as I interrupt you here, but when you think about starting a new venture, and if you have, you know, that 90 days working 100 hours where you're borrowing 10 million dollars, and you have, you know, 25 people coming on board, I mean, that is a major. Uh, risk. That's a major venture. I mean, this is not something that's so much lucky as it is. You know, it's targeted, but there's hard work behind it. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I've always said you make your own luck. And uh, I think most people understand what that means. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, on the golf course, I'd always rather be lucky than good. But, always. Um, <laughs> you know, most, most of the rest of the time, I'm going to figure out how to make our own luck. Um, but how, you know, how it actually started was we had one of our plants was uh, on the Ohio River near downtown Cincinnati. And um, we, we ordered three of the exact same plants. They were conventional plants that sit on big foundations and high up in the air. And we got to the site down uh, on the river, and we did the, uh, the, the soil test and found that the foundation was going to cost more than the plant itself because uh, it was all next to the river and fill and crap. And so we, we stopped and said, wait a minute, we can't do that. It's not in the plan. And um, we went and talked to a different type of plant manufacturer and uh, worked with them and, and um, came up with a plant that was a, uh, essentially a, a mobile plant that was uh, meant to be uh, towed around the country and put up quick. And uh, it cost a little bit more money, but it didn't cost as much as its foundation. So we bought that plant and uh, we got some experience and saw what it could do and was kind of impressed with it. And then uh, about a year in, we had an opportunity to do a big, about a million and a half square foot uh, warehouse, um, uh, Walmart warehouse, with a contractor who said, we just don't like the local guy. It's about two hours outside of our the market we were in at the time around Cincinnati. And the contractor said, we just don't trust the local guy that bid it. You know, do you want to take a look at it? And, and uh, you know, again, we're kind of starting out and said, yeah, sure, we'll take a look at it. And we went out and looked at it. And it actually required uh, two plants on site, and um, um, we figured out how to do it, bid it, bid it with a little extra money in it, thought if we're going to do it, we need to make a little extra money, and actually got that job, which meant we bought two more plants, uh, two more of these mobile plants, and um, uh, that was our first mobile job. And from there, kind of, um, we, we continued to look at, I'd call them, you know, just bigger, harder uh, more challenging mobile jobs where we would uh, be adding different types of equipment uh, or different uh, exp expertise within our company. And uh, it, it became then a significant part of our business. It was something that uh, was actually, we, we called it our national division. So we were started out headquartered in Cincinnati with three plants and our mobile division, our national division ended up, we did business grad uh, year in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So we did, uh, there's a, about a two million square foot target warehouse in Tucson we did. Wow. You know, what are we doing in Tucson, Arizona? A uh, little guy from Cincinnati, but it was one, another one of those things where, um, you know, the local guys didn't necessarily want it or it didn't fit, uh, or they they were concerned about the, um, mostly about the production schedule at the time, which was going to be 
for those of you, you know, in really in the construction industry, there are about 2,000 cubic yard pours in the middle of the night every night. And so the local guys are like, we don't want to do that. We got our regular business. And so that was that that's that was typical of our early opportunities where we were doing big warehouse, big big huge pours. But it, it eventually worked into where we were doing much uh, tighter, harder spec jobs, and we end up doing uh, you know a lot of work under FAA specs or Corps of Engineers specs. Um, we did the uh, Bristol Motor Speedway, uh, where those you know those are some of the steepest bank turns on a racetrack. You know you got to figure out a way to keep concrete on a whatever it is, a 32-degree banking. I mean, that, the banking, I went out there. I remember when we went to that job the first time, I was on the infield of the track, and you'd stand in those corners. And, and you know, I'm, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 6'5", and I got long arms. But I'd stand at the bottom of those turns and put my arm out in front of me and just lean forward a little bit and touch the curve, touch the track above me. I mean, it, uh, so it, th- those are the kind of things that were just a lot of fun and, and drove um, drove us to seek those things out or to go ahead and and look at those opportunities. Mostly because we were always making we were always making uh, profits that were, you know, two two and a half times what we'd make at home. So uh, it was lucrative. It's interesting because I think for anyone listening, when you talk about a two thousand cubic yard pour, I mean, it's two hundred thirty trucks, right? Roughly. I mean, it's it's quite a bit. And so when you look at you know, a need in the industry as you're bringing value to your customer base, which is what we need to do as business owners, is that you're looking, hey, there's a need, there's there's a, a, a gap in the industry, if you will, for someone that has the capability to know how to come in and perform for a continuous 250 truck pour and be able to set up a remote plant where now I have the materials and access and I can and I can hit that schedule. You know, the customer's going to look at that and even say, Jim, I'm willing to pay a little bit more because I know you can perform, right? There's value there for me because I'm investing a lot in this target facility and you know, this Walmart warehouse. And so I need someone that I know is going to live up to it because at the end of the day, you know, the, these are companies that are performing off of liquidated damages. I, I have a lot of peers to build for Walmart and Target. And so I know the liquidated, you know, the damages that are involved in these projects, if they don't hit the timeline, because there's a lot of, you know, all their shipping and manufacturing is, is, is leaving these facilities. And so there, there's a lot of responsibility. And that's why, you know, for someone such as you, Jim, that sees that gap in the market, you can come in and out conquer that and really provide value to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, we were, um, you know, in, in hard bid contracting uh, work, it's, it often comes down to the dollar, but I think we won all ties and we would uh, oftentimes get a little bit of a premium, mostly just because uh, on those on those uh, mobile jobs out of town, you know, we always told them we're dedicated to you. You're our only customer. We're not taking on additional work. And, uh, and oftentimes we're able to put a plant, uh, you know, directly right on site. Um, we did the Indianapolis Colts Stadium in Indianapolis. And Indianapolis is a big town, has a lot of big producers, uh, you know, a lot of really good concrete producers. But in that case, we bid that job and we, we put the plant literally right next, I mean, within 100 feet of where the, the uh, stadium was being built. And we said, you know, we're yours. You know, you've got everything you want. You know, and, uh, and, and, you know, Brad, if you, uh, if you order uh, a job that needs five truckloads and then there's the sixth one to finish off the job and, uh, the concrete plants across town and it's rush hour, um, you're in trouble. You, know, you, you've got a whole crew sitting there. You got a pump and a whole crew you, you're spending, you know, who, who knows how much, maybe it's, you know, on a commercial pour, maybe you're spending, uh, you know, 800 to a thousand dollars an hour. 
and and then you've got a product quality issue and um you know when you've got a plant you know 100 feet away um that's a pretty big advantage i think a lot of people saw that um not just from a delivery standpoint but from a, a quality and freshness standpoint as well so how many uh do you recall offhand how many remote plants you had built and constructed you know throughout your tenure so we had um most of the time we had uh, a six plant fleet uh, that was dedicated for the mobile work. And uh, we we typically would do uh, two or three jobs a year. Uh, usually didn't have more than two going on at once. And so uh, amongst that fleet of plants, that's we, we took them all over the country. And like I said, we were from, went from, uh, we were out west. We were in Arizona, New Mexico, um, Utah, Wyoming, quite a bit, all of those states. And then uh, as far uh, uh, south as Texas, Florida, Georgia, um, up up through uh, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Pennsylvania, so a little bit all over the place. But we were, uh, you know, because we were willing to travel and we had a decent fleet of, of plants, um, you know, we were able to stay as busy as we wanted to be. And and I think what's key is, you know, for you to be able to expand and have remote plants and have this consistency, right, in not only. Uh, manufacturing, but also in your brand, right? In your reputation and have that, you know, that same culture on a remote plant as you do here in house, you know, at your main facility. And I know you speak about it in your book and you've talking about, spoken about, you know, using, you know, for sake of a better term, you know, an Excel spreadsheet to rank the leadership, rank the training rate, you know, the ability of each of your employees and staff members, you know, so, so explain the value. I mean, how did you evaluate each management member or member of your team on a spreadsheet so that you can understand their capability you know, their, their drive, their ambition. Sure. And, and this is, I got to give credit to, um, an organization called Aileron, uh, that was, uh, founded by Clay Mateel, who was, um, the CEO of Iams, uh, pet foods before it was brought, uh, bought out by Procter and Gamble. And, um, uh, Aileron essentially helps with management and leadership of small and medium-sized businesses. And, uh, in one of the, uh, courses for the president, uh, that they have, they talked about this, and, and I started using it pretty religiously in my own business. But it was it was when you're growing, it's trying to make sure that you figure out um, w- what kind of capacity you have in your management. And so, for instance, you're trying to figure out, uh, in in plain terms, you're trying to figure out if your operations manager can go to the next level as the vice president of operations, and can your vice president of operations go to the next level as COO. And, and to do that, you're, you know, what I ended up doing was creating spreadsheets just uh, for each manager. And it was not, not something that I did, uh, you know, in an annual review with them or anything. It was just for, it was for my own internal sake. But I was looking for their strengths, their weaknesses, uh, where I needed to fill in, uh, whether it was with additional training <clears throat> or additional um, education or, or anything like that. And then kind of just give them a general rating uh, so I knew it was on a one to five basis of, you know, is this is this somebody that's excelling at, the, at their present position? And then the big thing was the potential. Was they, do they have the potential to move up to that next level? And um, at least then I had an idea in my own mind spread out in front of me in black and white instead of just sitting back in my chair thinking my guys are pretty good or they need help. You have in your mind where do I have some strengths? Where do I have some capacities? Where do I need to find some help? And, um, uh, it was, it was a pretty big, um, assistance for me anyways, when we started looking at these things where we'd have a big jump, just like we talked about that 10 day 
10 day job where I had to triple the size of the company. You know, there was, you know, at times we had some mobile work going on that required us to, to double the size of the company for a year, but then possibly go back down to nothing to uh, baseline, you know, the next year. So you, it was really critical to that. And by the way, the, the other thing I did try to do, I tried to do it to myself a little bit. Um, because, um, you know, as smart as we all think we are, you know, if you sit down and kind of rationally think that, you know, well, if I, if I'm really doubling the size of the business for the year, I'm going to spend X amount of time doing this. And by the way, I'm half time COO. So where am I creating gaps for my own company? Um, because of the either lack of bandwidth or maybe even just lack of knowledge, you know, it, it, it was, it was a good tool for me. This episode is brought to you by Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove. For over 75 years, Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove has specialized in refrigeration, cooking, and dishwashing that can be found in some of the world's most luxurious homes. At AFT Construction, we look forward to crafting our clients' dream kitchen when building the home of their dreams. To get this process started, we locate the nearest showroom and set up an appointment. It's that easy. Since Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove specializes in three major categories, we can make all of our kitchen selections in one stop. The first one is that Sub-Zero handles refrigeration. They are the preservation specialist. Key features included fresher, longer dual refrigeration, advanced air purification, precise temperature control, customized modular design. This ensures tastier, healthier food and eliminates waste so that the food stays fresher longer. Second is that Wolf is the cooking specialist. Key features include precise heat control, predictable, consistent temperature, intuitive controls, and easy-to-use technology, Everything is designed with you in mind. These features enhance flavors of food, ensure consistency, and eliminates guesswork. Delicious results every time. And last but not least is Cove, the cleaning specialist. Key features include precise water flow, superior drying conditions, fully adjustable interior for every need, and so quiet it never interrupts. Not only are all products functional and reliable, they look great, truly built to last. To schedule an appointment at your near Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom, visit subzero-wolf.com backslash showroom or click the link in our show notes below. For you, Jim, I mean, looking at this as yourself, I mean, what, what did you realize was the most effective time for you as a business owner? You know, what did you spend most of your time doing? And what should, you know, company owners, you know, really focus on as, as the owner of the company? Yeah, I, for for my size company, you know, we end up, um, uh, you know, kind of fluctuating between about 120 and 200 employees, depending on that mobile work, and um, kind of steady state of about 50 million in sales, just to give you an idea. And um, and so for that size company, you know, unfortunately, I still probably did a little bit of all the C-suite jobs, um, you know, CEO, COO, CFO, mm-hmm. and um, but. But for the most part, I think what, what I tried uh, tr- tried to not do is do stuff that I was good at and comfortable at and tried to make sure I was doing uh, the right thing, which is go find those gaps, go find those places that need some assistance and, and try and jump into those places. And so just to give you an idea, I don't think I'm a natural salesman. Um, but I know I can, I know I, I know I can close deals. I know I can talk to owners and, and, uh, you know, uh, usually come up with a, the right side of the sale. Um, but I'm not particularly good at it and I don't particularly like it. And, um, but I knew when I had to do that and, and I'd try and jump in there and, and, and the same thing happened, you know, in, in each area at one time or another, I'm probably more of a pure operations guy. I mean, I, 
you know, I would go out and do operations all day, every day, just because I love that kind of stuff. But, you know, you, you got to be smart enough to, to go where you're needed, not where you want to go. 100%. I mean, you need to understand where you're needed. And also, you have to understand, as well as you mentioned, you know, you know what you're good at and you know what you're great at. Spend the time at you're great at and hire other people that you're good at and let them be great, right? And and it allows them to now hit their wheelhouse and, 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 and really achieve what they need to. And, you know, going back to that spreadsheet, Jim, as you're looking at employees and you're rating them and you're thinking, okay, well, X, Y, and Z, you know, they're great at this. You know, I feel that, you know, maybe they're good at VP of operations. Are they ready to take that jump, you know, to CEO? You know, so at, at some point, though, you also have to look at this and say, I may not need to hire within. I may need to outside hire, right? I need to bring someone in. How can that affect just the overall culture and dynamic of the company when someone may or may not be promoted and now you're bringing someone else in, you know, who you think may be a good fit for the company? Yeah, it's it's tough. I, and I probably, I am, I, I was always um, um, a little extra sensitive to culture fit. And, um, you know, you can, you can hire a brilliant guy. You can hire somebody that was success, super successful, you know, at his role. And if he, if he's not a good culture fit, um, it can be disastrous, um, uh, because you'll, you'll lose everybody that works for him. You know, maybe they won't quit, but you'll lose, you'll lose them uh, kind of internally and you'll lose that, uh, extra 10, 20% that you used to get out of them every day. And so that, that, that was always a huge challenge. And I got to admit that, you know, I probably, you know, uh, batted a solid 500 in that area. <laughs> made, made, made my share of good, whoof, but... whoops, I shouldn't have hired that guy kind of thing. And um, <laughs> the only thing I can say is, uh, you know, uh, just keep the old adage in mind of uh, hire slow, fire fast. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you make a mistake, just don't linger and don't let it fester. That's one of my favorite uh, theories, I should say. I know Disney lives by that. You know, you hire hire slow, fire fast because, I mean, morale is everything, right? It's going to motivate your people. And and what I love in the book, too, I mean, you speak about the bullseye. I mean, of course, that's the name of it. But but you mentioned that when you're hiring and, and you're looking, what does it mean to know your bullseye? Because it's one thing to have a vision or have a target, you know, but you're very specific on what that should be. Yeah, I, you know, I used to... So throughout the book, I talk about I talk about a bullseye, and mostly because throughout you know my career and, and our my business in particular, um, you know there was a lot of um, kind of emphasis and uh, reinforcement of what exactly is our goal, and don't let there be um, you know what's typical like mission creep or settling for this is okay, this is you know it's still good, you know we're still positive, we're still in the black or whatever it might be, but. Uh, in, in particular, just making sure that, that there was always a focus on, am, am I still aiming at my, the original bullseye? Am I tra- is the arrow traveling towards that bullseye, or am I starting to get off path here? And, and so oftentimes, particularly, uh, you know, the folks that work for me, you know, they're, they're more engaged in day-to-day uh, activities. And sometimes, you know, that it's, it's easy to get distracted. And, um, uh, you know, it's the difference between, you know, working in your business and working on your business. And at, at my level, if I wasn't uh, working on the business more than in it, you know, and, and by that, what I mean is, you know, everybody has meetings they got to do. Everybody has papers they got to sign, contracts they got to review and, you know, go check on some work and go sign, you know, payroll, whatever it is, that's, that's when you're working in your business. But if you're not working on your business and making sure you're traveling towards that bullseye, 
you know, you're going to, you're going to experience some drift and, um, uh, you know, you think that uh, maybe that only cost me a couple percentage points, uh, in profit. But, um, you know, if you're in construction, um, you know, you know, you're just thankful you're not in the grocery business because our margins aren't much better. And, yeah. um, uh, you know, you can't afford a couple points here and there because, you know, a couple points here and there leads to a couple more points and a couple more points. And, um, I think that's how we always were able to maintain really, uh, almost best in industry profit margins, just because I think of that focus. I love that counsel because I mean, when you, the, the analogy of the, you know, the, the grocery business, the restaurant business, us in construction, there's slim margins, right. And a couple of mistakes. And if you're not focused on that bullseye or, or at least understand, you know, as a company that you should be spending maybe 10% of your time, maybe 20%, whatever that is on the company, not within the companies you mentioned. And, and to be very targeted as far as, you know, looking at our systems, looking at, you know, sales, looking at, you know, efficiency and do we have the right people in the right place and training and all these things that allow us now as a company to be so much stronger, you know, as we pursue these new ventures and new goals that, that someone such as yourself, uh, Jim, may have. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, a lot of these things we all learn the hard way, unfortunately. Um, but, but I, you know, I know that, uh, you know, for the most part, it was, it was me learning that first, but it was also making sure that my, all the, all my direct reports kind of caught on to that part of our culture is that we are serious about our bullseye and, and, uh, we are persistent in, in, uh, uh, making sure that we're aimed there and that we are tracking, uh, to hit it. And, um, you know, again, so often you can take a, uh, you know, in our, in our case, uh, you know, you could take a plant that, uh, has good margins and then they slowly start to erode and maybe you start to lose a little market share, but you're still making money and you'll, you'll, you'll get caught up in, well, that's okay. We're still making money or you'll get caught up in, you know, we should have, we should have gone up 5% in sales. We only went up half a percent and you start losing that focus. And if you're, if you're, if you, and particularly your folks aren't very much attuned to how important it is to stay focused on that bullseye because that's that's where you know whatever it is that's where you know maximum profit margins are maximum capacity is maximum quality whatever it is that cause you to to uh, establish that bullseye uh, if, if you're not focused on getting there you're going to start to lose and and you know I've seen lots of companies actually go broke uh, because they lose that focus and and I love that you shared that. You know, with a targeted bullseye, it doesn't mean you have to be very specific, you know, with a goal in your company that you have to do one thing. I mean, you can still be diversified, as you mentioned. You could have the core, you know, three-plant system where you're working in the Cincinnati area, but you can also be have a bullseye and a target in our remote plants. We're going to go work in Tucson. We're going to go work in other, New Mexico and other areas of the country, but still have a, a, a bullseye, still have a target and understand we're diversified so we can cater to different clients, but we're still going to be targeted in each specific area you know, so that we really are very clear with what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's, and it's in every part of our business too. I mean, I can remember talking with, um, you know, with our controller about, about receivables and we talk about what's our DSO or days sales outstanding. And we'd have a target for that. And, um, and let's just, just as an example, let's say, you know, unfortunately in the supplier business, let's say our DSO was 50 days. And I said, we want to get to 40. And, um, and, you know, by the end of the year, he's at 48, well, he improved. And then the next year he's at 46, well, he improved. Well, if, if our company didn't have that culture of staying focused on a bullseye 
you know, a lot of times you'd say, well, he's doing better. That's okay. You know, he's making progress, but he's not getting there. And, and we had that everywhere. We had that in every piece of the business where, you know, if we, if we established that target, um, you know, we were, we wanted everybody stayed focused and the resources behind it. And also the accountability in place for the manager, manager that, uh, was responsible for that area. So, and, and I love you focus on relationships because, you know, the reality is in, in construction and in design, manufacturing, whatever it is, it's a relationship industry, right? And even as much as you could have these refined systems and you focus on the business and you've grown, you know, from 99, 2000, you know, companies growing, you're doing incredible things, open up a new markets, the recession hits, right? I mean, 2006, the, the, well, really 2008 is when it really hit, but we lived through that. I lived through that. You know, I know you did. You know, so explain just the value of that banker relationship because even as many refined systems as you have, when that comes up, if you don't have close ties to your banker, which we're accountable to, then I mean, that's the reality. I mean, how did that help carry you through, you know, those tough times, uh, you know, 12, 13 years ago? Yeah, I, you know, I've seen so many companies where the their relationship with their bank has just turned on a dime and they, they feel like they've been blindsided and all of a sudden, you know, uh, they're on the outs somehow and being uh, uh, have more onerous restrictions on what they can and can't do. And um, I, I, I know from the beginning with our company, you know, our relationship with our banks was a, a personal relationship, you know, and I made sure that I didn't know just the guy that called on me, but I knew his boss and his boss's boss, you know, whether it was just a, a lunch or two or, you know, or whether I'd spend more extended time with them. But it was always, you know, it still comes, came down to a personal relationship with that the folks you're dealing with, not just the bank. And there was, there's only one time where that, that didn't hold up for me is where a, a bank got burnt in our industry by a number of other companies and they decided to exit the industry. And we lost uh, one of our major banking relationships that way. But every other banking relationship we had, uh, it always carried through uh, because that personal relationship and, and why that personal relationship was valued was a couple of things. One is that I made sure that our business plan and any forecasts we gave them uh, were realistic and also that we were, we were dead set and committed to hitting it or exceeding it. And so, uh, you know, I can't say we never disappointed a banker, you know, based on a forecast, but it was, it was damn rare. And so making sure that our communications were, uh, realistic about what we thought we could do and we were always getting there. And then the other thing was just being transparent with them, you know, as things changed or things happened was making sure that, you know, uh, you'd have those conversations with them rather than, you know, get to the end of the year and they ask for a financial statement and you didn't, you didn't tell them it was going to be different than what it, they thought it was going to be kind of thing. And so, um, you know, it's not really different than any other important relationship you have, you know, in business or, you know, for that matter, in life. You know, being open, honest, transparent uh, makes a big deal. And, and for the most part, you know, um, that probably kept uh, our long-term banks, uh, you know, with, a th- with us through those tougher times. Yeah, I love that you share that because there's two aspects to that relationship, right? There's the financial bank account, which we understand, right? There's the dollars in, dollars out. And there's the emotional bank account, right? The, the emotional deposits that you're putting in before you're needing that debit or credit out. And, you know, you think about in the recession where, Jim, if, you're, if you have a strong business plan, if you're communicating that, if you're living up to it, the reputation, the transparency, and you communicate with your bank, you know, not only are you financially doing your part of those investments and, and deposits, but you're also emotionally doing that. And so when, this, when the script changes, when it, you know, the recession hits, 
and now you need help from that bank. Well, that emotional relationship's been built. That credibility's been built where they say, you know what? We may have 10 contractors that we're working with, but Jim is number one because we understand who he is, his organization, you know, his word, his bond, everything else. And now we may allow some things to, you know, draw a little bit, you know, hold some rates, you know, hold um, debts, extend them, whatever it may be to help carry you through because you're a known entity to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in that case where that, uh, the our one banking relationship, uh, the bank, it was, a, it was a large national bank decided to exit our industry. Um, the the uh, local banker, the local president, uh, came to me and he was and he was uh, not happy uh, that this was the case. He said he couldn't do anything about it, and he said um, he said we're gonna we're gonna give you as much time as you need. He said he said I'll make sure you get a couple of years if you need it. And then he he made suggestions and a couple introductions of who he thought would be good fits for us for that portion of our banking that we were going to need to replace uh, with uh, him with. And um, so you know that was that was a big deal because I think he went way beyond probably what he was uh, supposed to do, you know, just to try and help us when his arms were tied. But that that was definitely because of the relationship we had. Yeah, which is so key. And and you know your part of the country is different than mine. You know, I know and. Arizona, it's a right-to-work state. It's a little bit different. We do have some union shops. It's not to the extent of other parts of the country, maybe California, Illinois, Northeast, and so forth. But, you know, what are some of the pros and cons of owning a private company as opposed to a union company? Um, I don't think there are any pros to owning a union company. <laughs> I mean, and I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be harsh or not or anti-union about it, but, um, you know, the only thing I can see mostly in the construction industry is, there are some, there are some jobs that you're required to be union, and so that that there is that gives you an advantage to being uh, pre-qualified, so to speak, for that type of work. But um, you know, I've uh, I've worked in worked with unions and worked without unions, and there's uh, to me uh, th- there's no advantages to it. There's no re- I, every once in a while you read in the paper, it's usually a European automotive company. Will will say they are seeking to bring a union in or let let a union in, and I think that's insane. I don't I don't know if they're just saying that for some reason, but um, you, you know the only thing that uh, unions bring usually is uh, maybe a little bit of balance to a, an extremely poorly run or manip- manipulative company towards their uh, employees, but uh, there's no benefit to it. Well, I, I love that term because, I mean, reality is if you're a great business owner and you believe in your people and you invest in them, you know, that, that, that's the value, right, that they see. You know, there's, there's, you're, you're allowed a little bit more flexibility there, whereas, you know, you need to know the, the mentality behind it is, hey, we're going to, you know, if you have a manipulative owner or someone that's taking advantage of you, you're right, that's the intent there. But, you know, so how, you know, with a company such as big as yours and, you know, how you're working in these different markets and for different vendors – you know, how are you able to, I don't want to say combat, but at least be able to keep your firm private? Well, the, I mean, actually the interesting thing is with my, my previous employer before I started my own company, when I uh, started working at that company, they were 100% union. And when I left, they were 100% non-union. And, and to, to me, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're going to be competitive, if you're going to be a successful business in this world today, you better have a good relationship with your employees. You better be striving to be the employer of choice in your market, in your industry. And um, if you're if you're not, you've got a lot bigger problems than just the union coming in trying to get you to pay better wages and benefits. 
it's a, it's it's got to be a big big red flag if a union comes into your non-union uh, company and wants to organize your workers. Uh, it's essentially telling you you screwed up. You need to do something different, and you need to develop a relationship where you're treating your employees. To me, the most important things are fair and consistent, and that's what most people are looking for. They'd love all the other stuff to be motivated and have a nice place and air conditioning and stereo or whatever else it is. Those kind of things are nice, but most people want to be treated fair and consistent, and um, unions are around to make sure you know, that when companies aren't doing that, that maybe there's some protection or maybe an alternative. But um, uh, for the most part, if you're doing your job as an employer and you really actually want to be a successful company, which means you're treating your employees not just fairly and consistently, but uh, you're making it a place where they want to come to work, where they're motivated, where they're uh, part of a team, uh, where they understand your mission, uh, where they're contributing to it, um, you know, those are the kind of places that people want to work at, and those are the kind of places that unions have no place for. Yeah, I love that counsel. I mean, any business owner listening, and it doesn't matter what your business is, if you're fair and consistent with your employees and you have clear, you know, SOP, clear scope of work for them, you know, they're going to be able to really find joy in their, in their employment. And, and that's just with access to information now, with technology, everything else, I mean, you know, it, it's so different nowadays to really research and understand the firm you're going to work for. Uh, and, and in your case, Jim, you know, here you are building this company. You know, you, you tried to acquire one. You didn't. We spoke about, you know, the venture of going off as an entrepreneur and building this incredible company and working, you know, all throughout the country. Did you have an exit strategy? I mean, was that always the intent? You know, how did that come to fruition that you decided, hey, we've built this amazing company. It's time to hand it off to, uh, to the next one. Yeah, I, I would say for, you know, the first five years after I started the company, I wasn't thinking about any any exit, anything. I was, you know, for, for a while, you're just thinking about surviving, and then you're thinking <laughs> about growing, and then you're thinking about, you know, uh, making lots of money and those kind of things. I was not thinking about selling. I, I, started, I started the company when I was um, 36 years old, so... Um, uh, although I would I would also counsel that age shouldn't make a difference in that uh, in the process of thinking about exit strategy, but but sometime soon thereafter, as we as I got more active in the industry and uh, we looked at some um, acquisitions and made a few, um, you know, I started uh, looking at uh, a little bit longer term and mostly to to the point that. Um, as, as most owners are of small and medium businesses, uh, your business is probably the majority of your net worth. Mm -hmm. There's probably a ton of people out there that it's virtually a hundred percent if you exclude your house. And, um, and so, you know, I started, uh, really, uh, trying to take a little bit of an objective look at it because I think one of the, one of the problems most owners of small businesses have is, they're going to run their business till they think it's time to retire. So if you're if you live in Ohio and you own a business, you're going to run your business until you retire and move to Florida, which is what we all <laughs> are supposed to do. And um, um, you know that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible, it's a terrible uh, idea. You know to think if it, it'd be like if if you're sitting here with a uh, hundred shares of a stock, is to say I'm going to sell it when I'm 65 years old. I mean, nobody does that, right? You're going to sell it when you, when you think it's reached a high. I mean, that would be the, the most important thing. You buy low, you sell high. And so it's, it's absolutely insane to think 
that you're going to sell the largest asset, maybe up to 100% of your net worth based on how you feel about you're getting old, you want to do other things, you want to retire, you want to go play with the grandkids. That's insane. And so uh, as I looked at that kind of objectively, I started saying, well, what is my business worth? And and tried to, for, t- for a couple reasons, but tried to keep tracking that so that I was uh, maybe a little bit better aware of uh, how, what this biggest asset in my portfolio was doing. Was it doing well? Was it doing good? Was it doing bad? And it's not always up to how I was running the company. It had a lot to do with the market, it had a lot, some to do with the economy. And uh, wanted to make sure that I didn't, uh, you know, the worst thing would be for anybody to get to, you know, whatever age it is and decide to sell and it's in the middle of a recession, which you have no control over. Or you get, you know, we all are going to get sick or we're going to die sometime. And, you know, maybe you have some sort of a yourself or a close family member or your spouse has a, you know, a life-threatening health issue and you can't, you can't work or you don't want to work because of that, you know, and it's, that shouldn't be the reason you decide to sell your company. You ought to be wanting to sell when it's high, right? No matter when that was. And and if I look back on it, 36 years old, old, I started the company. I should have started, you know, I should have started looking at that, you know, the year after I started it, maybe, because I should have tried to figure out what is, you know, what kind of return have I gotten? What's the value of the company? Is it high now or is it low now? And make a decision based on that. It ought to be a little more objective than the emotional, you know, uh, subjective way we usually look at it, or a lot of people do. Well, the emotional side is realistic. You put your heart and soul into something and you work so much time and see it grow and see it flourish. And, you know, but I love that counsel as far as understanding the valuation. Every company should be looking at their valuation uh, on a regular basis, right? Because you need to understand what the market is going to dictate for the value of your company. And whether in your case, we have brick and mortar and equipment behind you, as well as production and sales. I mean, these are all things that flow into that valuation and understanding that. Well, now that's going to allow you to really look at that when the time presents itself as it did for you, Jim, where you can look at this and say, yeah, this, this is time. I understand the valuation there now can allow me uh, to pursue other ventures, right? I'm still young and have a lot to do. And, and, and this is interesting too, because if I'm not mistaken, you know, without getting too political, but you dabbled in politics a little bit, right? You, you actually decided to run, if I'm not mistaken. <clears throat> I did. There was a, there was a bout of temporary insanity I dealt with. And, um, <laughs> yeah, what, what would ever perceive, you know, construction's hard enough. Anyone listening to construction, design, architecture, it is a tough industry. And now you want to dabble in politics. So I think you took that complication to a whole new level. Yeah. So, so far you've painted me as kind of a smart guy. And now we're going to take <laughs> a sudden turn. Um, yeah. It was, just to, to tell you the brief story, the, um, it was 2016, wasn't that long ago. And um, uh, Speaker John Boehner retired. Um, it's kind of a funny story. I don't know if you remember, but the, the Pope, uh, visited the Capitol, um, and, uh, Boehner's Catholic, and that was an emotional day, and he probably was, uh, facing some, uh, strong, um, uh, leakage of support from, uh, Freedom Caucus and Tea Party, uh, and was losing a little bit of his, uh, uh, previous uh, authority to, uh, I guess, create policy within the Republican Party, let alone the Congress. Anyways, um, he retired, and uh, that left an open seat, and that's pretty rare in Congress almost anywhere. And um, that particular district is where my office was and where I probably spent the majority of my waking hours for the 
prior 25 years and um, uh, essentially got uh, a look at who was running and it was a bunch of career politicians. It was a bunch of career Ohio politicians lining up for the same job, for their next job. And um, I, I couldn't believe there wasn't a businessman or you know, somebody else, an outsider, essentially, and that uh, uh, all those things came to influence me along with friends and family that I ought to throw my hat in the ring, and so I ran. And and how was that, you know, just dealing with the complexity of running for politics and, you know, everything that goes with that? It, it's a totally different world. I thought construction was an odd place to spend <laughs> your life, but I, politics is, is definitely worse. Um it, the campaigning was something um, I, I couldn't, you know, I kind of thought I knew what it was going to be like. It was much worse, much <laughs> harder. It was just, it's a, it's a terrible thing to try and run for Congress. Um, but it's uh, obviously some people like to do it. And, um, but, um, you know, what I, what I did discover was, um, it, you know, while I thought I could step back from my business and, um, and, and honestly, I, I wanted to do something for our country and I thought I had some good ideas and could be effective member of Congress. Uh, what unfortunately I found was that, um, uh, you know, people get elected because of money essentially. And, um, there was, there was, uh, the guy that won got uh, a lot of outside money came in from super PACs from all over the country. And he raised a ton of money, raised more money than, the three of us that finished second, third, and fourth behind them put together and, um, and, and took, took the office. And so, um, I wish them well. Um, but it's certainly, uh, that, that whole experience was, um, uh, almost incredible and it, <clears throat> so incredible. In fact, I'm, um, I'm in the middle of writing a book about it and I, I think it's tentatively titled, I ran for Congress and lost, thank God. <laughs> well, well, it's a tough climb, and it doesn't matter what side of the ledger you're on. You know, politics is always tough, and you know, and and you know, we're we're grateful for those that do it. You know, and grateful for our military. I mean, all those that 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 do that for us. But you know, business is hard enough, I think, for for most of us. And you know, I love that you've you've spent that time uh, as a business owner, Jim. You know, throughout your career of building your company, building your firm, looking at the valuations. You know, building. Uh, just careers for your team and your employees. And now, you know, the next chapter where you're looking at becoming an author, well, you are an author, right? You already have your book uh, that, that was just released, we mentioned. You have another one upcoming. And so now you're looking to give back to the community, to us, so that we, you know, in our generation could be better business owners based on the experience you've given. So what's upcoming and exciting for you, Jim, outside of, uh, outside of that book that you're going to be working on next? I, you know, I really am excited about this, the, the business bullseye release. And I, um, it, you know, Brad, I, I wrote the book because, um, I have been, you know, a lifelong reader of business books and I've probably read every major book that's come out in the last 30 years. And, um, and there's been some great ones, but, um, what I felt was missing was a book that was, um, uh, honestly, you know, written by somebody like me for my peers, you know, for other people that started their own business, run their own business. And, um, <clears throat> sorry about that. Awesome. And I, I, you know, I really felt like that, that was a missing, um, uh, a book out there that would really just talk about how do you start and successfully run. And then, and then the full cycle, eventually selling your business for a good price, 
uh, if you're a small to medium sized business. And I also wanted to to you said you've read some read the book and and I also wanted to I hope you know uh put some stories in there that are you know that not only kind of uh, illuminate uh the the few points I'm trying to make about how to run a good business but also maybe even entertain people make it you know make it a, a candid accessible read that uh, is, isn't too heavy so um I'm hoping that's going to help you know along and along those lines of um you know I have some speaking engagements that are kind of related to this whole topic and um, also do some uh, CEO advisory uh, uh, type engagements where um, rather than just being on the board of a company, um, actually have uh, a couple engagements where I'm, I'm uh, essentially just an advisor, uh, particularly with some smaller and, uh, and really some decent-sized, medium-sized businesses um, where, um, you know, occasionally you want somebody, uh, I hate to say it, but to talk to, you know, that's been in your position. You know, instead of maybe talking to your board if you have one, or talking to your wife or accountant or lawyer, you know, sometimes you want to talk to, you know, the, the exact guy like you. And I, I tell people, you know, being somebody that started his own company and runs his own company, that's a that's a club, and um, you, you know, it's not that big a club, but um, we all know, you know, when you meet somebody else that is like that, that's done that, you know, you kind of recognize, uh, you know, the uh, the same the same membership in that club. So, yeah. And I can appreciate that. I mean, as a business owner myself in construction, which is a tough industry and that club is very difficult, you know, on a daily basis and you can understand that. And that's why the book resonated with me. And I highly recommend we're going to have the book uh, in our show notes. We'll have it in our post here, uh, you know, with the link to Amazon to purchase that. And, you know, can't thank you enough, Jim, for making time for us today and sharing your valuable insight. And, and where, where can our listeners find you? Uh, probably the easiest place is um, is uh, the website is uh, jimsperlino.com, uh, but you can find me at uh, LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And uh, I really appreciate it, Brad. It's always it's always good talking to another member of the club. Oh, it is. Yeah, we can share war stories all day for sure. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes. They're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.